all who are in Christ prior to that were guilty of a capital crime. It doesn't matter whether sins you committed or didn't commit or whatever. Ultimately, we, our sin, nailed Christ to the cross. It was required that he die for us. So, what is the penalty for killing someone else? And yet, in God's economy, and God's way of doing things, that death brought us life. I just can't understand that. Except for being forgiven. So thank you, Scott, for that reminder. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we again just uh, uh, take this time to examine a part of your word, we pray that your spirit will work through us. <clears throat> we thank you for the fact that he is the author but also is the one who works in our hearts and our lives to apply that to our living. We know we have responsibility there too, but we pray for understanding and we pray for hearts prepared to do what you would want us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> As we begin our message today, the kingdom beyond the resurrection, um, a couple people have asked me, what happened to our Job series? And I've said a number of times in the past, you folks have excellent questions. It's very good questions. Um, <laughs> uh, to refresh our memories, and this will kind of serve as a bit of a, of, a, of a review for us here. As I studied the messages on the triumphal entry and the resurrection of Christ way back, as we're talking about uh, resurrection time, uh, there was an obvious connection to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is one of those subjects that can be a bit foggy sometimes for some of us. And I've admitted in the past that I didn't necessarily have a, a great handle on it or maybe forgot some things or whatever. It's, it's a big subject. So for review, we saw the kingdom concept was introduced in the garden after the fall of man. God declared that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, the seed, the descendant, right? Um, God made a personal unilateral, right, one-sided covenant with Abraham prior to and apart from God's covenant with the nation of Israel. God restated that promise to Isaac and Jacob, who then obviously was renamed Israel. The Lord continued the covenant through David, and it was personal and specific to David, but it was still part of that overall covenant that God had made with Abraham. Then the prophets reinforced the eternal covenant of God based upon his grace that would one day reach out to all peoples. Amen. So for weeks we considered both the prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament and the fulfillment of those prophecies in the life of Christ. Jesus described the nature of the kingdom, uh, mostly through parables. He also described a citizen of the kingdom, again, partly through parables, but also through the Beatitudes that we have just recently looked at. So, this subject became a lot bigger than what I really intended for it to be in my mind, but I didn't want to stop, right? You know, it's like, this, this, is, this is good. This is something that we need to know and we need to remember. So with that said, we need to review a couple of points uh, that we've looked at a little more recently. The kingdom is made up of all believers from all time. Old Testament people of faith looked ahead to the Messiah, the chosen one. We now look back to the finished work. Of Christ. 
The kingdom does not equal the gospel, but the gospel is the good news of Christ's eternal kingdom. So today we'll continue our study into the rest of the New Testament. We will approach this from a topical point of view, meaning we will be concentrating on the subject of the kingdom and what was carried on by the apostles and others after the resurrection of Christ. So this is now um, you know, what, what we tend to live by, right? Uh, primarily, as we're looking at life in Christ, is, is the, the, the rest of, of the, uh, the New Testament for us. But I want to ask us to do one key exercise during the next several messages. Take what we've already learned about the kingdom and lay it alongside what we will be learning. Um, there's, there's several things that we just mentioned. There's that bigger picture of God's kingdom. And I want us to, to, to correlate those things as best as you can. Part of the New Testament teachings of the kingdom will be review, but this should help us reinforce the connections that we have made. And those connections are the connections between the Old and New Testament. The, the kingdom is what really brings all that together, the kingdom of God. Connections between prophecies of the Messiah and Christ fulfilling those prophecies and connections between the gospel and the kingdom itself. So with all that said, then, we're going to uh, start again into the idea of, of um, the kingdom beyond the resurrection. But this first point is actually just prior or right around the time of Jesus' resurrection. We're going to look at that in just a minute. So the kingdom of Christ is our first point. So beyond the gospels, the New Testament focuses primarily on the Gentiles. Now, we know that there was this transition that took place because ultimately the Jews began to reject. At first, there were many thousands that came to, to, to a saving knowledge of Christ, but, but there was a, a rejection that eventually took place. But what I want us to see is something that Jesus said in Matthew 24. Verse 14 says this, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So what Jesus is telling us here is exactly what we learned from the Old Testament and even what he demonstrated while he was on earth here is he's saying this, this gospel, this good news of the kingdom is going to be preached everywhere. This is what's coming. It's not just going to be this isolated national thing. It's going to be a fulfillment of what the prophet said, that peoples are going to be blessed in Christ. That even goes back to the the covenant that we had with Abraham, that peoples will be blessed by his descendant. And so we see all of this taking place. Now Jesus says, all right, it's now time to, you know, I guess what we might say, take the show on the road, right? That's that's, that's what he's doing. It's now going to be worldwide. It's going to be something that's going to to be spread out. And what what I want us to do is uh, please turn to Hebrews Uh, chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. This gives uh, just a a neat um, uh, encapsulation of of what we're talking about when we're talking about this being the kingdom of Christ. And again, this is partly review, but it's also uh, dovetailing and looking ahead. It's going to read for you the the entire chapter, and all we're going to do is just let this be uh, in our thinking as we're talking about Jesus and it being his kingdom, right? And that as we are moving forward, this gospel of the kingdom, this good news of the kingdom that has come, is going to be spread. 
Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That, that position of sitting at the right hand of God, that in and of itself is, is showing us that he is king, right? Verse 4, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, for to which of the angels did he say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Let me pause just here for a moment. This whole idea of, of the begotten one, of the firstborn, that is position, right? Remember that. That's positionally. That's just who Jesus is. He didn't have a beginning like we think of. He, he is eternal. Now, he was born in the flesh, but he is eternal. So let me move on. Verse 7, and all the angels, and, and of, of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flaming fire. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And, in other words, the scriptures continue, you, Lord, you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So there's a comparison there with the angels, but the primary thing I want us to see is it's Christ's kingdom. And that's what we've been talking about. It's his. God the Father has given it to him. But now we, we uh, transition over then to look at what's going on in the book of Acts. The kingdom in Acts. And we're going to look through several passages here and just explain through them. And, and again, this is going to be like, almost like a little bit of a survey, but we're keeping on this subject of the kingdom. What is happening? What, how is this continuing of what Jesus established and what he said and even what he uh, um, encouraged his disciples to do? The first passage is Acts chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to read several verses out of here. This is Peter's message, um, you know, his, 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 his very first, that, that, that amazing message that he gave. But I just want to pick out a couple of the verses here. We're going to look at 30, 33, and 36. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, God would raise up the Christ to sit on David's throne. So he's talking about David. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, that's Christ, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He's the master, and he's the chosen one. Okay, that's what, that's what uh, Peter is saying here. And so in this passage, 
he, he gives a clear gospel message, of course. These people were living out God's plan of redemption in real time, right? This, this, was, this was, you know, we look back at it. This was actually right after Jesus rose again, after, he, after they received the Spirit, and, and all these things are taking place. This is real time. Many of them had witnessed Christ's life, his ministry, and his death firsthand. If they didn't see it firsthand, they would have heard about it secondhand. But they probably saw some aspect of this. But Peter punctuates his message with several kingdom-oriented comments. And we see them here. That he is the Lord. That he is the Christ. That he is from David. And these different things. All, again, coming back to what we've already studied moving forward. Now look at Acts chapter 5. Acts 5.31 Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now, this is the second account here of, of two where the apostles were beginning to preach and there was a significant um, uh, response going on and the leadership didn't like it. And if you have been here during our Bible Fellowship Hour, uh, you have, you have uh, seen and heard about the persecution that was beginning there back in Acts chapter 4. And the response was, and this is my paraphrase, I'm sorry, we can't stop preaching. We're doing the work of the Lord, right? And so we have a similar thing take place in 5. So I'm kind of just giving you the context. Um, the high priest had ordered the apostles jailed for healing people and preaching salvation through Jesus. The next day, they were sent for. Well, the prison was secure, but the apostles were gone. Don't ask me how that happened. But God just basically said, you're not going to be there anymore. And they weren't. So he miraculously freed them. They found them. Now we're talking about the Jewish leaders found the apostles outside the prison and, and then brought them before the council and the high priest again. And then they asked the apostles, the leaders asked the apostles this in Acts 5.28. Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? Again, this is the second time they've been talking to them about this. And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and indeed to bring this man's blood on us. Right? In other words, you're blaming us for his death, <laughs> which was true. Okay, So then we look at what the apostles' response is. In verses 29 through 32. But Peter and the, other, and the other apostles, so we're talking about all of them now, answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus for whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Folks, you know, I'm, I don't think that they've got an attitude. I just think that they're, they're stating the obvious. You killed him. Right? You know it, guys. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior. To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, that and we are his witnesses to these things, and also, so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Wow. God the Father and God the Spirit, they're behind this. And we are representing God the Son. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? And what does he say? 
he said, the Father has made the Son the Prince. He's the heir of all things. Now let's look at Acts chapter 8, verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, both men and women were baptized. So they were baptized after they believed, obviously. But Philip preached to a large gathering of people in Samaria. That's where this took place. They responded by, by believing, and then, as it says, were baptized. But what does it say that they believed? Things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. Amen. So we have what? The kingdom and the gospel. They were not believing in two separate things. As we've studied, the kingdom of God and the person of Christ are so interconnected, so bound together, that they cannot be separated. And this continues in Acts 19, verse 8. And when he went to the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. This is when Paul had arrived in Rome. One of the first things he did was gather the Jews and try to persuade them about Jesus. And his point of reference was the kingdom of God. That was where he knew that he could connect with these Jewish people. Christ has brought the kingdom. I'm giving you the good news of Jesus, the good news of salvation, but it's about the kingdom. Then if we turn to Acts 28, let me read for you verses 16 through 31 in Acts 28. And then I, I have a, just a, a few things to, to share in relation to that. Acts 28, beginning in verse 16. It says, Now when he came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who when they had examined me, verse 18, wanted to let me go because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar." Not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and speak with you because for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. And they, and they said to him, we neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think. For concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. Okay, just pause here for a minute. This sect, this, this splinter group, right, that, that hold to the Messiah, they're being spoken against everywhere, all right? That's, that's the setting. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified to the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. And some were persuaded by the things which he had spoken, and some uh, disbelieved. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed. After Paul had said, had said one word, the Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, 
Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the heart of this people has grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their heart and turn, so that I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Can you imagine being in that meeting, right? Then Paul dwelt two years in, this, in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concerned the Lord Jesus with all confidence and no one forbidding him. So just to, to remind us, in verse 23, it said that he explained solemnly testifying the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus. So as we see, when he arrived here, he gathered the Jews together. Then in, um, in uh, chapter 28, I'm sorry, the same chapter, yeah, verses 30 and 31, it says, Then Paul dwelt two, years, uh, whole, two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus. This is obviously the conclusion of the book of Acts. So what's the summary here? What was happening in the book of Acts? These passages all tell us that the 12 apostles plus Paul preached the same message. They were all giving the same message, the same one that Jesus said would be spoken. They spoke the kingdom and they preached salvation through Christ. And again, this ties in perfectly with what Jesus said. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached. And now we see that magnification of what Jesus said, right? That it's going to go to all the world. It's going to go to the Gentiles. So now let's transition over into the kingdom of the epistles. The kingdom in the epistles, sorry. And, and by the way, we're going to talk more specifically today about the kingdom made possible. We're going to look at some other aspects. This one's a little bit bigger because obviously the epistles, that part, the letters, part of the, of the scriptures are, are bigger. And so we're going to look at the, the kingdom made possible this morning. First thing we're going to do is look through the New American Standard at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. Paul describes those who are not going to inherit the kingdom first. These are those who practice such things in their lifestyle. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about people, not how they were, but how they are, how they want to be, how they want to remain. Okay? And so regardless of what we might pick out, right, maybe even some hot topics today, look at that list. It's pretty varied. Anybody practicing this as a lifestyle, in other words, an unrepentant person, someone who has not come to Christ and said, I need to be forgiven, but someone who says, I'm fine. 
I'm good. Right? That's what we're talking about. But what I want us to see is, is these, these very, there's awesome words here. We're not going to spend a lot of time on them, but some time on them. Because we see here about the unrighteous. Well, that means that there's a flip side to all of this, right? Because he says, but. So the first thing is, but you were washed. The word washed there represents our moral salvation, if I could say it that way. We are purified or made clean from everything that defiled us. That's what happened at the point of salvation. We were washed, we were cleansed from our sins. Titus 3 Verses 4 through 7 say this beautifully. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, and we, we read about that right in Galatians, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through what? Through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. God came and washed us, cleansed us from our sins. And it goes on to say, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we shall become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So even in Titus, what does it show us here? We're inheritors. Inheritors of what? The kingdom. What's the kingdom? Ultimately, it's eternal life. We can't separate them, right? Now, we're going to move on here to then this phrase, but you were sanctified. To sanctify means to set apart. One of the main ways the word is used is to signify either being set, up, being set apart from or setting ourselves apart from sin. Now, let's give you a quick example here, okay? Um, I grew up with two brothers, and three boys can do some damage to groceries, right? <laughs> My dad was a wise man. When he got something that he wanted to eat... <laughs> He would point to it and he'd say, this is private stock. Okay? That was his way of saying, no touchy. Okay? Now, in in reality, he freely shared that with us, but he wanted to make sure that he enjoyed it too. Okay? And so the private stock label went on certain things and we didn't touch it unless we got permission. Right? Um, Not that we didn't want to. But anyway. So what, what my dad really did was, is he sanctified the oranges and the grapefruits. He set them apart. Those were sanctified. They were set apart for him. And then he could do with what he wanted with it. All right? That's just a really simple way of kind of getting a hook on this, right? Because that's what happened to us. Used here, this idea of sanctified, it's not talking about our progressive spiritual growth, right? We use that term, sanctification. We're growing. We're being set aside more and more to be like Jesus. We're being set aside more and more from sin. That's not what it's talking about. Instead, Paul is saying that when God saved us, uh, we we were uh, positionally set apart from sin and set apart as God's children. Okay? It goes very well with that idea of being washed, that 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 once for all cleansing of all of our sin we're we're going to sin some more okay but positionally we're clean positionally we're set aside our standing before god is this We're, we're set apart from sin and we're set apart to him we're now his 
Now, Paul had already described to the Corinthians that they were sanctified back in chapter 1. Look at this. Chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who are in every place, call in the name of the Lord Jesus, Jesus, I'm sorry, call in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Now, this is what's really cool. That word sanctified and saint, they're really pretty much the same word. Saint means set apart. Sin is no longer our master, and we are no longer under spiritual death. The sentence of spiritual death. We are set apart to life in Christ. And we can call this our spiritual salvation. Now, it's all salvation. But the first one is really the moral aspect of it. The second one is the spiritual aspect of it. And then we come to the word justified. But you were justified. This really brings us to the legal aspect of our entrance into the kingdom. Jesus took the punishment of our sin in our place, fulfilling the legal requirements for the payment of our sin. God declared us not guilty. Listen to this. We were not guilty by reason of atonement. Jesus died in our place. He took our punishment upon him. Again, if we go back to Titus chapter 3 again, the last part of that says that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we have this other aspect here that, that, um, uh, Titus even, or that Paul wrote to Titus about. Second time that this was, uh, you know, that, that, that applies to what we've been looking at here in 1 Corinthians. So we were washed we were sanctified, we were set apart, and then we were justified. We were declared righteous legally because there was a claim against us, right? We were guilty. There's, there's no, no question about that. But God then declares us right, declares us um, uh, th- there's no crimes against us. The punishment has been taken care of. There's nothing left for us to pay for. Therefore, we are free. We're justified. Let's move on to Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. And that says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Notice, what we see here, we, we, have, we have forgiveness, we have redemption, we have these other words that are all going on here, but what does it come back to? What is it related back to? The gospel of Christ and the kingdom of Christ. We did not qualify for the kingdom. God made us eligible for heaven through Christ's work on our behalf. Amen. This message continues through the epistles continues through the rest of the New Testament. Now, we, we read Galatians chapter 4 earlier, and I'd like you to turn back there again. I'm just going to read the first seven verses for you just to kind of uh, get us acclimated back there again. Galatians chapter 4. Before we get there, I skipped over one. Ephesians chapter (laughs) 1. 
<laughs> Sorry about that. Ephesians 1. Glance at my notes once, glance back again, something changed. Okay, let me start for you in verse 7 here. Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until the redemption and the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So again, as we just kind of work through this for a moment, what we see here is very similar language. We are inheritors. Inheriting what? Inheriting eternal life, but we're also, we're inheriting the kingdom. And we're doing that because of the gospel, of the good news that we responded to, that God did a work in our lives. He predetermined that we were going to receive that. So we have this inheritance, again, referring to this inheritance in Christ. Now let's go back to Galatians again. Sorry about that. Got ahead of myself there. Galatians 4. Now you may have noticed we're looking at a lot of Scripture here. Folks, I'm just telling you, I would rather have God's Word give you what you need than me, right? So my words are few this morning, but I want to tie these things together and I want to keep on, again, going back to what Jesus said, how Jesus described the kingdom, what he says his good news was, and also what we even reached back all the way back to the Old Testament. I mean, to the very beginning, as God was calling his nation together, these are all fulfillments of those things. So again, Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he's a master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons." And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ Jesus. Now, as we consider this, I got to bring us back to last week. Even if you weren't here, it's just a reminder that we talked about this last week. And the idea is that this son here, and it's it's not exclusive. It's not just males, okay? It's talking about a, a direct descendant. Someone who's going to receive something as a result of that. And then the word adoption is really the same word that we have for son. And adoption, what it really means is, I bring you into my family as a full-fledged child, as a full-fledged son. Okay? That's the idea. So you too are a part of my family. 
And so we're made sons, we're adopted as sons, as heirs. And that is what all of this is talking about. And so we've got just this beautiful package here of, of the New Testament um, showing that what Jesus said would happen is happening. We also, I wanted us to see, the message hasn't changed. Folks, I don't know where they get this, but there are times when people try to, and, and I think sometimes it's, it's like too much study, but they try to say that, that Paul's gospel is different than Jesus' gospel, that Paul's gospel is different than Peter's gospel. And if you look at Paul really carefully and you kind of dissect everything, he's kind of going off on a tangent a bit. So, so we should just ignore Paul's gospel, as some people say. Now, there's another extreme. Some people say we should only follow what Paul said. Okay? Well, here's the thing. There is no excluding anybody here. The apostles all preached the same thing. We saw that in the book of Acts. We can evidence that through, through their letters as well. The message is the same. It's the good news of Christ so that when we receive him, we enter the kingdom, we are able to enter eternity. All right? So where, where did all of this bring us here? I'm not sure where that one's. I didn't need that. All right. Uh, let, let's, let's, let's conclude this. As I mentioned already, the message of salvation by grace through faith is consistent through Scripture. Amen. We see that over and over again. The message of the kingdom is also consistent through Scripture. God's plan beyond the resurrection did not change. You know how sometimes you're in a company or... Even, I'm, I'm guilty of this, right? I'm the oldest brother. Mom and dad leave. All of a sudden, what happens? Things change, right? Because I'm the oldest and I get to say what goes. No, not really, but you get the idea. That didn't happen. When, when the king left this earth to sit on his throne, waiting for the kingdom to be completed, those under him didn't say, well, how can we reimagine this? How can we put our own spin on this? Folks, I don't even think that crossed their minds. But here's the sad thing. It's crossed a lot of people's minds over the last 2,000 plus years. To change it, to conform it, to modify it for this world, denying its message, denying its power, that really brings us to the next. So the gospel of Christ is the same. The message of the kingdom is the same. I was taught and have continued to hear for years that the central theme of Scripture is the gospel. Now, folks, I want to be careful how I say this. I've come to believe that this view is only partially correct. In our previous studies, we've concluded that the gospel and the kingdom are very similar, but not exactly the same. The gospel is both the invitation and the means by which we enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And like Jesus said to Nicodemus, we must be born again. We must have a new spiritual birth. But through this study, I believe the correct understanding would be something like this. And I'm just going to put this up here. Folks, this isn't scripture, okay? It's, it's not perfection here. I'm not saying that. But, but I, I just, I just want to articulate it. The theme of scripture is God's eternal plan to have fellowship and live with a people that he has predetermined to be his own by his grace. We, we read that just now in scripture. God draws these people to himself and they respond in faith to the good news of Jesus Christ. They in turn worship God in spirit and in truth as they serve and obey him in love and devotion. God's kingdom and those who comprise it are ultimately for his glory. So what's the difference between what I just said there, what I believe is reflected in Scripture, and saying that the central part of of the Scriptures is the gospel? The difference is, is that the gospel and the kingdom are not centered on us. Everything centers on the Savior of our souls and the King of the kingdom. Now, I want to approach this in a balanced fashion. I'm not trying to freak anybody out here, okay? Man does not seek after God, but God seeks after man. If God were to just, and and I'm giving you a human picture of this, if God were to just simply cross his arms and wait for us to come to him, the scriptures tell us he would have no takers. There isn't one, the scriptures tell us, that seek after God. All right? So just keeping that in mind, God graciously pursues us. Christ coming to this earth was part and and the apex of that pursuit of God to man. Much of scripture is dedicated to this. So I don't want to diminish the gospel. I don't want to diminish salvation. By grace from God. God's grace and salvation is to ultimately point us to a radical obedience and dedicated service to the Lord. Anybody have a problem with that statement? Isn't that what he wants? He wants us to serve him. If you love me, you will what? You will obey me. Right? Understanding this should also clarify our place in the kingdom and God's place and God's place in the kingdom, which should motivate our obedience and service. So our lives bring glory to God in proportion to our living our lives for God. That is ultimately what the scriptures are all about. It's about the kingdom and the king. Do we play a big part of that? Yeah. Because without us, and and understand, I don't mean that God is dependent. I'm saying he wanted a kingdom. Without us, there is no kingdom. He's determined who is in his kingdom. He's calling them to himself. He's rescued us. He's given us the ability to enter into that kingdom. And so with all of that said... That's, that's how the kingdom is, is 
how we say, populated. That's how we come into it. But the kingdom itself isn't about us. It is, but it isn't. Ultimately, it's about the Lord. And it's about bringing glory to Him. Now, let's, again, make this real. so, So you understand, I'm not trying to... This here, this time that we're having, this brings glory to God. We're going to go back and we're going to fellowship together on the table. Just being together as brothers and sisters in Christ brings glory to God. We're going to talk more about that next week, okay? Not, not that specifically, but more things in relation to what, what we're dealing with, what we're talking about when it comes to the kingdom. But I just wanted to, to give you a taste. I'm not going off the rails here. I'm just simply saying we need to sharpen our focus a little bit. If we have had, as, as, as I have many times, had this idea that, man, if you look at the scriptures, it's all about the gospel. No. The gospel is the message about the kingdom. It's all about the kingdom. It's all about the king. So the question is this. If you are part of the kingdom, are you fulfilling your citizenship? Are you bringing glory to him? If you are not a part of the kingdom, do you understand what you're missing? Will you even today respond in faith? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the clarity of Scripture. Yes, we have to look for it a bit. There's, there's, it's scattered around, but there's a purpose for that too. You, you, you want us to see that your message hasn't changed. We thank you for that. We, you, you tell us in your word, there is no shadow of turning with you. There, there isn't one whiff of change in your character. And so just as you promised, this, what we think of as some random individual in the Middle East, that you were going to give him a nation, that you were going to give him blessings, that you were going to give him descendants. And ultimately, that, that descendant... That seed would bring about an eternal kingdom of people that you sought out. Lord, we, we're overwhelmed by that. But that's what we see all through Scripture. That's your plan. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the great ultimate sacrifice that it took it took that to wash us it took that to set us apart it it took that to declare us right to justify us it took the death of Christ but we thank you that in his rising We are promised life. Life if we place our full confidence in what Jesus did for us. Lord, I pray that we'll be about your business, the business of the kingdom, that we will measure up to how Jesus described a citizen to be. 
and that we'll take even warnings from the parables that we have seen. And now, Lord, as we, as we look at what your word has to say in the rest of the New Testament, boy, there's, there's some instructions here. There's some consistency. And we just want to thank you for the life that you've given to us, that we are inheritors. We're inheritors of the kingdom. We're inheritors of eternal life. All because of what you have done for us. And so with thankful hearts, with praise, we just want to acknowledge your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.